Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Authors Unbound. I'm Peter Campion, Executive Editor of Unbound Edition Press. And I'm Patrick Davis, Publisher and Editor-in-Chief of Unbound Edition Press. How have things been going, Peter? Things have been going really well, Patrick. And in particular, I'm thrilled to be rereading and reading the new poems of our guest today, David Roderick, who, in addition to being such an impressive poet, one of my favorite poets of his gener- his generation, my generation, is also a, just a marvelous and generous citizen uh, in the world of literature. And we get to talk with him today about his work in the Bay Area, uh, running writing workshops and a center for writers, uh, and his work as an editor. And I'm just thrilled by David's work and his uh, generosity. That's the the exact word that I was about to say. He's such a generous spirit, both on the page and in the literary community, as a editor, as a writer, as a teacher. And it's so engaging to uh, get to spend time with him. We last saw him in San Francisco in person. Um, and had a great evening of conversation and said, hey, we should have you on the podcast. And so today we get to share that conversation, talk about his work at um, Adroit Journal, his work at Left Margin Lit, and his various poetry collections, which are remarkable. So I'm excited to share today's conversation with everybody. So this is David Roderick on Authors Unbound. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Authors Unbound. I'm Patrick Davis, publisher and editor-in-chief of Unbound Edition Press. And I'm Peter Campion, executive editor of Unbound Edition Press. And our guest today is a true literary citizen, someone who serves the writing community in all sorts of ways, as a poet, as an editor, and as a director of a wonderful writing collective uh, called Left Margin Lit. It's none other than David Roderick. Welcome to Authors Unbound, David. Thank you, Peter. It's lovely to be here. And it's good to see you again, Peter. It's been a while. It sure has. I think we last saw you in September in San Francisco when uh, Jesse Nathan and Danielle Chapman gave wonderful readings from their books. And it was wonderful to see you there. And I've been a big fan of yours for more than 20 years. And so we this go is, way back. We do. And um, my admiration for you goes way back too. And our Boston sports fan camaraderie goes way back. It's been particularly, particularly fun to have a chance to reread The Americans and Blue Colonial and also uh, David's new poems, which I hope we'll have a chance to talk about. And th- these this work seems to me to, as Patrick said, lead right into your work as a literary citizen. I mean, this is these are poems that are intensely lyric, that have a life of their own quite apart from public life, and yet they they capillate out into what it means to be an American right now in these sometimes wonderful, often bewildering days. And um, mm-hmm. they're poems that are 
often rooted in the family life and at the same time in the wild, in what it seems would seem to be the opposite of the home. You know, we've got coyotes speaking poems. We've got um, all kinds of things in your work. And I'm just really thrilled to have you on. Oh, thank you so much. Big admirer of, of your work too, Peter, as you know, and of Unbound too. I mean, that was a fantastic event um, in San Francisco a few weeks back at the Ferry Building. What a magical night. I was thrilled to be a part of it. No, oh, thanks so much. It, it really meant a lot for you to be there, given uh, everything you have on your plate. Um, among your other roles is also directing content for Adroit Journal, which is one of our leading literary journals. How do you balance all of it? How do you find time to write as a poet, to direct Adroit, and to also run Left Margin Lit, the collective and workspace for writers in the East Bay that you run. How, how do you have such a broad ranging writerly life where it all works? Now that you say it, I sort of wonder if I need another cup of coffee here. I, I'm i not sure. You know, I, I do try to, I'm trying to do a better job of taking care of myself and um, kind of, you know, practicing being more present in my life and just more regular sleep and exercise. And I do feel like you know, I'm definitely a very middle-aged person now. I feel like I've been able to, gosh, I really hate this word. It's so prominent around here, like kind of optimize <laughs> my my use of time. Um, I feel like I just, I'm constantly kind of like, you know, dabbling in something for an hour, then shifting some something else for an hour or two. Um, and I like all these roles and responsibilities kind of complement each other. And they also draw on different skill sets. So you know, there's something kind of thrilling about that. If I was just editing, if I was just teaching or I was just writing, I'm sure I, I couldn't keep any kind of healthy balance. So, you know, it feels busy for sure. Rarely overwhelming, to be honest. And I think I've just gotten better at better at at keeping all these plates sort of spinning and minimizing, you know, the ones that crash to the floor, which still happens. That's the key, isn't it? In your newest poems, Darkness for Beginners, uh, we've had the treat of seeing that manuscript as you're working on it. You talk about middle life and dad bod and all of the <laughs> things that come uh, to us at certain ages. And in your first or your second collection, The Americans, you sort of talk about the middle geography of suburbia quite a bit. And right. I found myself wondering what it is about these kind of middle passages that captures your imagination. The Maybe it's the tension of those ages or those spaces, or maybe the natural conflicts that comes with them. Or perhaps it's just because it's where, it's where life has led you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think some of it's that. I don't know that I'm pursuing those spaces or situations intentionally. I find myself there and then um, I'm, I'm kind of attuned to that sense of middleness or it feels related to feeling alienated maybe or not really fitting into different kinds of modalities like the suburbs are clearly, you know, somewhat urban and somewhat, you know, rural or natural, kind of a, a faux pastoral in a way. Uh, which interests me. You know, I grew up in a town, Plymouth, Massachusetts, where you know it's really laid in you at an early age. There's a certain kind of colonial history there, and and as I, I got older, I, I saw actually how complex 
you know, those stories were and, and how one side was being told really well and another side not so well. And that, you know, really those stories were, were nothing but mythology, a certain kind of mythology, which felt, you know, freighted with, with all kinds of um, interesting uh, possibilities, I think, you know, creatively for me. And I never quite let go of that. I'm a, I consider myself to be kind of a bi-coastal person, you know, I'm from the East Coast, but I, I live in the West Coast. Um, I'm between my, you know, my sweet youth and, and, um, you know, my, my wizened wise, you know, elderhood. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's an advantageous position to be in as a writer, actually, you know, because you're just, you're looking for complexity and nuance. And, um, I'm always trying to kind of tune myself toward where, um, uncertainty, um, and, and mystery and difficulty is, I guess. You know, I think, a poem that, gives a really good sense of what you're describing, your kind of location or multiple locations or the way you bring in lots of places. And is it the opening poem in The Americans? It's You have several poems in the book titled Dear Suburb. And I wonder if you'd read the first Dear Suburb poem, which is the... Sure, sure. No, I'm, I'm happy to. I haven't read these poems in a long time. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Here we go. Dear Suburb. I'm not interested in sadness, just a yard as elder earth, a library of sunflowers battered by the night's rain. When sliced wide, halved at dawn, I see how you exist, O oh satellite town, your bright possibility born again in drywall in the diary with the trick lock. For years I slept with my window cracked open, wanting screen cut threads of rain. Blind suburb, dear untruth, you who already know what I mean when I praise every spared copse. You are my battery, my sad clue. But after I mowed the lawn and watched robins chesting for seeds, I couldn't resist what hung in the tool shed where, with a pair of garden shears, I cut all the hair from my arms. That need, that scared need to whiten or clean a surface, plywood or lawn, and the spy wall behind which I stood stock still and sinned against the fly's flyness. Though you live inside me, though you laid eggs in the moisture at the corners of my eyes, I still dream about your sinking empire 20 feet above sea level and the many things you fail to see. Beautiful bleached gas can, tomato posts bent into art. How half of a butterfly, cut crosswise, still looks like a butterfly, etc. Peter, I'm glad you asked to... Uh... David to read that poem. I was I was going to do the same. I a couple days ago read all of the Dear Suburb poems together and and what a set they make, talking as you were a minute ago, David, about sort of the complexities and the the not quite fitting in one place or the other is captured across these poems. And of course, these feel like letters to America itself to all of the spaces in between uh, the coasts, not not just between urban and, and rural. I do feel like the that melancholic mode is my default mode or has been for a long time. And I think, you know, in the newer work and past, this book came out nine years ago, I've been trying to expand or broaden my, you know, the, the emotional palette, I think. Um, so trying to write poems that express anger or joy maybe silliness, maybe, you know, some kind of humor. It's, it's harder to do than, than it seems. Um, but for sure, 
you put your finger on, I think, the sort of the feeling tone that you can find through a lot of my work. Absolutely. You have a, another series, um, all of the same title in the new manuscript, Darkness for Beginners, which of course expands emotionally and geographically outside of America, outside of the suburbs, which are titled Message for Jim in Syria. These are a series of poems to James Foley, the journalist who was captured and brutally executed by ISIS. Tell us, if you would, about your connection and your relationship to Jim. Um, and then I wonder if maybe uh, you might also read the first message for Jim in Syria from Darkness for Beginners. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Patrick. You know, it's it's hard to talk about still. You know, Jim was a friend of mine in graduate school. He was a fiction writer back then. He had very similar upbringings and, you know, in Irish Catholic, New England. Um, you know, he and I had both taught middle school to underprivileged kids prior to going uh, to get our MFAs. And we played a lot of basketball together, hung out a little bit. I mean, he was a few years behind me, so we didn't spend a ton of time together, but we did do athletic things together. We did have a few really deep important conversations um, for me. And I think I just, you know, I felt incredibly kind of alienated in the, in the program. I was really green as a writer, inexperienced. And, you know, even though he was uh, maybe a little younger than me, a little less experienced, he, I felt, I felt like uh, being in his presence felt like being sheltered uh, by him a bit. Just a deep sort of penetrating, sweet, sweet, generous person whose politics were a little more radical than mine. And I was drawn to that too. I wasn't quite um, as liberal or open-minded as he was. So uh, yeah, just kind of an important figure. And, and of course, you know, I mean, this, this book, this next book, Darkness for Beginners kind of begins with, you know, Jim's sort of disturbing, fateful, uh, you know, terrible death. Um, when I had my daughter kind of on my lap, as you do, she's maybe a year and a half years old. And I think, and I'm just kind of scrolling on my computer, and then you know I see on CNN that the news that he had been been killed um, there, and so you know that's kind of where these poems, these newer poems, have come from. Out of that 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 juxtaposition again, it's this middle area where you know I'm kind of binded by that point, and, and a tenure track job, and um, you know kind of thriving and. And my recent book is just, this book has just come out, The Americans, and I have a family now, and um, this is where I ended up, and and Jim, you know, made another set of decisions and and ended up, you know, having this, you know, having this horrible, I can't even describe it, you know, end. Um, and so, I just think I've struggled with a lot of uh, guilt about it, I suppose, sadness about it for sure, and, you know, I... But I, and I also just sort of deeply, deeply admire his commitment to his politics and his his project, which you know, his if you don't know his story, he was really uh, he was a, a reporter who was flying in the you know war zones and and reporting you know from the people's perspective the impact these wars were having on on local population and trying to tell their stories, and he was committed to that, and you know he lost his life because of it. So I just really admire his bravery and. Um, his determination to shed light on on the, the real victims of these kinds of uh, you know atrocious acts. So so yeah. So sorry, I maybe went on a little bit long, but I've never I haven't talked 
out loud about him in a while. Most of um, most of the feelings come out in the poems now. So let me pull this one up and I'll read that that poem. One can only imagine the role he might be playing today in uh, the current conflict in Gaza and how vital voices like his are, as you said, reporting from war zones from the people's perspective. Yeah. So he and I had been in contact when he was over there, um, direct messaging over Facebook for a while, up until maybe a month or two before he was abducted, you know, for the last time. So um, this is sort of in that, that time period. Message for Jim in Syria. After you snuck into Aleppo to report on the plight of the little people who walked upon light grass, I dreamed of you, even bragged to my friends that I knew you. I mean, we talked once about basketball and white guilt and the challenge of teaching teens how a single kid can carry our country's pain. Like that Le Guin story you loved, the one in which a whole city's prosperity depends on the isolation and torture of a single child. Now you become that child, a captive underground with a chance knife resting on your neck. Today the State Department brought me back. They said there's nothing we can do but wait. I read the note inside my polished white bathroom to the sounds of crows and skateboards cutting up the street. After the spiders, only a single pillow of sand knows where you sleep. At the same time, I thrive here in the suburbs with my daughters and wife where the smell of fresh cut grass carries through air. While you're beaten by your captors, I'm ashamed to say I'm as healthy as ever, buoyant when I walk to work past lawns and churches bricked on every corner. I buy mouthwash to ice my breath, play hoops twice a week, and float in the local pool where chlorine sponges my skin, my loose white hairs. Somewhere in the dark cobwebs kiss you awake, yet I'm dozing under heaven, glowing stars glued to my daughter's ceiling. I pray for them before I pray for you. I pray for you before I pray for myself. What if you die in that desert? What if Walt Whitman's grass isn't spiritual enough. This is an illusion, of course, the plush lawns of America, the stickers that seem to glow in my daughter's room. When I sleep, I can't sleep. I belong to the whip of the weed whacker now, to the suet bell hanging from a limb. That's one heck of a poem. I imagine it's a hard poem to read. Thank you for reading it for us. Thank you. I'm struck by... And this will sound maybe like the simplest of questions or observations, but in reading your work, I'm I'm struck by your approach to verbs throughout your poems. The, it strikes me as so original. It seems there's a constant attention to the action of reality or of so-called objective reality and what it takes or makes upon us. And sure, yeah. this is sure, surely intentional, um, the, that type of, as Peter likes to say, what makes great poetry? It's about the words. <laughs> these, <laughs> sure, these, are sure, not, yeah. these are not accidental words. Um, but it strikes me throughout both of the collections that I've read, just the attentiveness and the care that you give to verbs. Oh, it's definitely my favorite part of speech. Um, it's interesting. I haven't had, you know, this kind of conversation where someone pointed out something so specific, uh, in, in quite a long time. Yeah. I kind of think about verbs as these little, 
energy centers, battery packs that kind of channel energy across the line and also down the page. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I want something that makes sort of logical sense, but just to, so that it doesn't bump you out of the palm, but that just kind of warps or charges uh, in, in a slightly odd way, if that makes sense, um, to kind of hold the reader's attention, particularly in a poem that's a little bit longer. I don't know how that, uh, that poem is about a page and a half. It's maybe more more important to do it in a poem like that. I confess, I don't. It's second nature to me now. I don't think about it a lot. And and maybe one other element that's at play here is I'm often thinking about uh, things like assonance and consonance, you know, and and, and uh, alliteration, and and often a selection, a verb selection, uh, you know, the selection of a verb will come out of that wordplay and sound sense. I guess that makes sense. So. I like your acknowledgement of the strangeness that it brings to life. There is sort of a strange action, right, that comes in some of these lines that makes makes them utterly arresting and, and original in in reading them. It's more important quality for me when I'm you know I'm like trying to write about something like the suburbs. It feels plastic or uh, it, it it feels unreal in some sense, right? It, I'm looking for mystery in places where we don't normally go to find it, maybe. And and so that might explain the, the value of some of those verbs too, or the necessity of them. Thinking of the way that your poems lend this kind of incredible clarity to the ordinary and make the ordinary feel extraordinary. And also about the way that you connect the personal and the, the self alone to to the world. For me, that shows a connection to what's admittedly the very different work that Jim Foley did, but also to the work that you still do today with Left Margin Lit and working um, in that creative writing center, serving writers in the Bay Area. And I just wanted to ask you about that, David. What is Left Margin Lit? And do you, do you feel it connects to your own work when you're alone in your at your desk working as a poet. That's kind of community work that you do. It's a great question. I mean, the writer's life is so isolating and early on I would sort of bunker down at my desk, you know, in a little basement apartment, dank basement apartment and, 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 and work. And I've gradually sort of, I, over many, many years, I've drifted more into public spaces. So it took me a long time to find like, oh, I could actually write in a cafe and not be disturbed and kind of be around people to you know, further along that that uh, that line, like kind of creating my own creative writing, you know, community and organization and welcoming people into the space where, you know, is where I do most of my writing now. Um, it's, just, it's quite interesting. It's kind of sense of like being kind of alone at my laptop or with my notebook while there are also people, you know, very close by uh, doing the same thing. It feels communal and fortifying, but Left Margin is um, Left Margin Lit is is a uh, a creative writing center and workspace here in Berkeley. We've been around for seven years, and we offer creative writing classes. You know, mostly in the major genres: poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. Um, I teach some of the poetry classes, but we farm out a lot of these other kinds of courses to other folks who have more expertise. And during the day, it's a workspace, so uh, Sunday through Friday, folks come in. Um, and that's generally when I'm there and, um, my partner, wife, a fellow poet, Rachel Richardson, um, she, you know, she's in, in the mix too at the space, but I'm, I'm there more often and, uh, you know, we're there working and we take a break for lunch and chat about the writing life and the struggles we have and 
the kind of annihilating despair that we everyone goes through every once in a while, even me. And so just sharing that, having that shared experience and acknowledging how difficult it is and how, how tough it can be, you know, when you're isolated, especially after COVID, I think, you know, these are, it's really valuable to offer this kind of community and experience for other folks. And, um, you know, it's, that's largely successful. I'm really proud of it. We're still hurting a little bit after COVID, but I, I feel like we're mostly bouncing back and a lot of people are coming in. Um, to the workspace more people than ever and it's just a very vibrant kind of experience and we also occasionally do you know events in and out of the space so literary readings interviews things of that sort yeah it's it's been wonderful you're busy you're teaching you're writing you have a full life and then you decide to to start a, a whole new workshop and create a a space maybe create your your own in between right where people can gather what inspired Left Margin Lit? I mean, it's doing so much important work, and it's as any of us know who have started anything. These, it's easy to dream them, and it's hard to run them. And um, and where did it come from, and and how's it going? It's a good question. Uh, thank you for it. So I was in academia for a long time. You know, student, grad student, lecturer, professor, and the older I got, the more I I kind of felt. I don't know, like it was sort of a safe space for me. Uh, maybe I was a little too cloistered away and I, I wanted to be in the community more and I, I, I didn't really figure out how to do that, you know, and I just didn't have the experience or knowledge or skills yet. So I got a sabbatical at my job for my job in North Carolina and Rachel and the girls and I, my daughters and I moved out here and this is where we met. Uh, we had met at, at Stanford and this is where my wife is from. So we were near family. And, you know, we knew of these other organizations, these community organizations that offered these sorts of programs. So the Hugo House in Seattle or the Lighthouse in Denver or Loft Literary, uh, which is right near, right near you, Peter. And I just think they're inspiring programs. We're just bringing these, uh, these, this type of programming, I guess, directly to people without having to operate under the auspices of, of like a, a scholarly, you know, institution, university. And, and that was really thrilling. And, you know, kind of a key component to this was that during that sabbatical year, I started working for a, a local literary festival, the Bay Area Book Festival. And, you know, very quickly, I, you know, became a kind of a key cog. I was doing communications for them. And after working there just for a couple months, I realized like, oh, this, you know, this is a, this is a nonprofit or literary organization right here in the Bay Area. And it looks like a ton of work, but the work itself didn't look intimidating. All the the you know the requirements of, of of that sort of job, you know, the publicity and the marketing and the organizing and strategizing, like that, all felt interesting to me. And so that enabled Rachel and and I, I think, to um, enabled us to kind of consider building our own program. And 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 that's kind of the history of it. I'm not sure I answered your your question. I feel like there was a second part of it, but that's how it came about. And and I. I taught years ago, I taught classes at Stanford Continuing Studies, and those are really thrilling classes to teach because they're just people coming in from all walks of life, all ages, you know, so many demographics represented, and it was just felt really very broad. And so after teaching, you know, I love my graduate students and undergraduates, but there was something thrilling about being in a classroom with a, you know, 22-year-old who wants to go get her MFA and some, you know, 70-year-old retiree who has always been interested in poetry but has never tried his hand at it. And to kind of be in the room with a mix of people, such a broad spectrum of people, was just really exciting to me. So I, I found that 
really inspiring and enticing. Absolutely. There's, there's a purity to that without all of the academic expectations of scholarly work and publishing and committee reviews and so on and so forth. And, and you just get the joy of teaching and inspiring and helping to mentor somebody. Uh, it's beautiful, beautiful work you're doing. And um, I'm so glad that the project is thriving. Speaking of starting things and, and where they go, I'm going to ask you for a bit of advice here. Unbound Edition has just started. In fact, we sent our first issue off to print today of Revel, a literary journal edited by the wonderful Otsur O'Reilly. And you know a lot about what it takes to run a journal and feed the literary conversation uh, in your work with Adroit. How much quicksand have we stepped in <laughs> by deciding to start a journal? <laughs> yeah. Well, I we know, survive ourselves. You, know, uh, you will. You will. I have great faith in Atsuro, you know, um, his work ethic and his sensibility, and it's going to be fantastic. I'm very excited for you. I mean, I should I should make a distinction here. You know, I, I do work for Adroid, and I, I direct content, which is a word I'm not even sure I, I, I love. But what that means specifically at the magazine, you know, Adroit's an online journal, and it's been around for 13 years now. Um, but I just handle mostly like criticism, essays, and interviews. So I that's sort of parceled off or maybe maybe even just siloed off. And I have my own team and I, I kind of operate in tandem with the the journal proper, you know, and they were they're 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 focused on issues and publishing poetry and fiction and we're kind of running alongside them and you know paying attention to what they're doing and trying to complement it in as in as many ways as we can. You know, I've never been at the helm of a project like that, a publishing endeavor. Uh, you have much more experience in this area already than I do, both of you, since you've started Unbound and you're publishing these beautiful uh, books. I do think these journals are so important, even, you know, and I don't know, is this, this is going to be, so this is going to be a print journal, it sounds like. I wasn't sure when I visited. It, it is, uh, Rebels yeah. Okay, it's okay, a, that's it's fantastic. It's a print journal. Yeah, it's a print journal and we'll have very limited pieces of it available online. Like you, okay. I resist the word content <laughs> uh, and it's a necessary word. But yeah, we'll have little samples available on the website, but it is print first. Yeah, great. I think that's that's fantastic because I do have this fear. You know, you see like what's recently happened in the Gettysburg Review or other you know, literary journals, even really established ones like that, that have lost university support. I mean, I do think it's it's vital that there are community and kind of individual projects popping up that can make up for the lack of institutional support for some of these these projects, uh, these really vital ones. So the internet makes that possible. Um, you know, just basic like blood, sweat, and tears of folks like you make that possible, and and I think it's 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 totally necessary um, because probably well I think we're in a precarious spot right now where a lot of universities are bailing on on some of these literary and publishing projects they don't seem to understand the value of them I, I think that's that's dangerous deeply problematic so uh, it's yeoman's labor so I, I'm glad you two guys and Annette Soro are on the vanguard here and and keeping at it because it's so important for um, the community David can I make a request. To you, yeah. I'm wondering if you would read this wonderful poem, which concludes the new book, Darkness for Beginners, Lying in a Hammock. It's just a... <laughs> okay. Sure. 
Why not let my daughters toss rocks over the shed while birds bicker and dart through my wraparound mood? The girls remind me that wonderful means full of wonder and that no tech company will ever simulate what's happening in my nerves right now. The swig from a flask tucked in my shirt, the kids' squeals and birds obsessed with winter. Only an asshole would think I'm wasting my life swaddling inside this hammock, maybe a bit too close to the compost pile, the lawn shouting its moan in strewn greens. I lie here as a soul in training, smelling deep the raked up dead stuff from our cellar wells with the slaughter of July's sunlight and my daughter's hair. It's just about ice cream time. With these last few minutes, I could read the news or scroll to my phone, but it's probably better just to lie here sipping the flavors of dusk as a father to enchantment and brother to the void, while joy and two hearty oaks suspend me through this soft middle stretch of my life, letting the light strop my face while a finch on a limb above homes in on her home. The soft middle stretch of my life uh, is sort of where we we started uh, our discussion and how how difficult life in the middle can be. We hope to get to it. We hope to survive it, but it can be such a hard passage. Gets defined by crisis so often for such good reasons. The new book. I know the first book came out from University of Pittsburgh Press. Where is the is the new book found a home yet? Or is that a different conversation for us to to have? <laughs> the book's just starting to make the rounds. I think it's done. You know, I mean, Jim's an important part of the book. I'm trying to be more personal and find, again, access, as I said earlier, different emotional registers, you know, which I've kind of resisted or suppressed. I mean, I think this is another thing that I realized when I left academia was how much I was um, censoring myself and um, blocking out parts of my personality that might be useful. For example, humor. I was afraid to be funny in poems. I didn't think anyone would take me seriously. So I wouldn't have ever written a line like, you know, only an asshole would think, you know, uh, I'm a loser or whatever that line is. So it feels a little more free and exciting to me. And uh, yeah, you know, hopefully it'll find a, find a home soon. I say to Peter that my poems are like a child in the Sam Shepard play. They're just buried <laughs> out in the backyard. <laughs> I think I heard you say that in an earlier in an earlier podcast, and I literally laughed out loud as I was walking That's my dog. That's a totally my... clear-eyed view of the situation, Patrick. No <laughs> self-deprecation, no, no distortion in that at all, man. It's just such a funny phrase, though. It is. It's great. It's great. And, I mean, that that's something like like only an asshole would say. That that actually should go into a poem. Is <laughs> you know, just comparing your your poems to or your new poems to a child in a Sam Shepard play. You know, speaking of uh, the bondage that we get to enjoy as uh, uh, with our favorite authors, we brought in one of our most favorite authors, Marcel Proust, to to join us, and we've adapted the Proust questionnaire for these interviews. And I was wondering if we could give you a question or two from that questionnaire and put you on the spot a little bit, Damon. Sure. It's terrifying, but I'm I'm buckled in here. <laughs> I do love this part of the podcast, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Since you're such a, a central figure in bringing literary communities together, what do you most value in your literary friends? You know, I, I have a, a, s- a small group of, of friends who read me carefully and they, I think, you know, this might be paraphrasing Robert Lowell, you know, they like my work, but not all of it. 
my best readers or my best friends who are readers have read have been reading me for a long time and, and those are the folks that I that I trust because I, I know they'll they'll call me out when I haven't put in the work uh, or when something's just too rough or undeveloped. Um, so you know as a writer, that's the kind of friendship I, I, I seek. But I think you know in terms of like literary citizens, I feel like there aren't a lot of people thinking about themselves as literary citizens right now. So there are a lot of folks that I feel like I've built relationships with because I, f- I feel like they're engaged in trying to have a conversation and, you know, thinking really hard about ethical and aesthetic elements in, in the work and, and really paying attention culturally to kind of what's happening. And I really admire, you know, a lot of folks like that too, who I don't maybe share work with, but who, who like thinking about themselves as a, as a literary, you know, citizen who's contributing to the conversation by interviewing, by most importantly, book reviewing. Um, by promoting work that they feel like isn't getting enough attention. I think that's really important. And, you know, that kind of brings us back to the work that I'm trying to do at Adroit, you know. That's wonderful. This has been such a great conversation. David, you're generous with your time and your thinking. And uh, to the entire literary community, we're thankful for you and for all that you do, including uh, talking with us today. This has been David Roderick on Authors Unbound. Thanks everyone for joining us today at Authors Unbound, connecting passionate readers with passionate writers. You can find us on our website, unboundedition.com, and you can find this podcast through any podcatcher online. We look forward to your joining us again.